0: Acts chapter 16. We began our service with two songs that are kind of newer in our repertoire. Psalm 150, of course, a great really mission song. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then that song, Facing the Task Unfinished, that was written by the head of China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's founding work though later in the 1900s, as a a call uh, for more missionaries to return to China after so many of the hardships there. Fits well with our text, with our added blessing of the, the equip hour, with that look into being a witness, not just here, but wherever God would have us to go. In chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we're steered in our thinking towards a theme of openings, openings. In verse 14, we read the Lord opened her heart, speaking of Lydia. In verse 18, we see a different kind of opening as Paul casts out this demon in the young girl who was being used for the financial gain And we see it in that phrase, in the name of Jesus, come out. In verse 26, all the doors were opened as the earthquake shakes the prison and doors open and chains fall off. And I think we could argue an opening in verse 30 in the question, what must I do to be saved? These openings... In different contexts, a wealthy, maybe single woman, an enslaved, trafficked, demon-possessed girl, and then a jailer serving the Roman Empire. In each of these accounts, we're discovering this opening, the opening of hearts and minds to the gospel hope. And so our theme is simple. Simple. God opens hearts to salvation. God opens hearts to to salvation. I probably don't have to convince you of this. It's likely you already believe it. After all, you know what it is to pray for someone to be saved. And whatever words you might use, essentially you're praying this text that God would save them, that he would show them the truth, that he would bring someone across their path to tell them, that he would open their heart. Perhaps you know this to be true because it's your story. You heard the gospel many times. You maybe sat in a Sunday school class or were raised in a Christian home, but at some point in the telling of those stories again and again, we might say something like, the light went on, or it clicked, or I heard it and it, I just believed it. But why then instead of all those other times? You see, we, we really do know what this text is telling us. God opens hearts to salvation. And maybe if you've never thought of it before, you see it here in the text plainly. The Lord opened her heart. God opens hearts to salvation. Now, our task this morning is to ask, how does this text describe that opening? What does it tell us about his work of opening hearts? So I want to use the four points on your outline there, four explanations of God working to open hearts for salvation. The first one fits with our theme of what we've sung and what we've heard already this morning. God works through our obedience to the Great Commission. In a sermon series on the book of Acts, you just cannot escape the Great Commission. Whether you take it from the language of Matthew 28 or the the language in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we are under the weight of responsibility to do something that our Lord has asked us to do. And that is to witness to his fame, to his glory. God works in our text through the obedience of these disciples to the Great Commission. And be reminded of what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission, as Matthew records it, is to make disciples as you go. Now, I say it that way because we've usually heard it or memorized it as go, therefore, and make disciples. So we assume that the going means airline tickets, boats in the old days, and you go far away and you make disciples. Clearly, most of us in this room, the vast majority all of us but one, are here in this area. We haven't gone anywhere if we define going as you have to launch out to a faraway place. But the text doesn't put the emphasis on this going, and if you do that, you have to make disciples. Rather, there's one action verb, and it's make disciples. And the going is just a participle telling us when we do that. So as you're going this week, not overseas, but to Walmart and to the job and to the gym and to the parks, as you're going, as you're doing your life, make disciples. And how do you do that? Well, he tells us that in the commission as well. He says you'll be baptizing these people who come to faith in Jesus and identify as a follower of him, baptize them, and then teach them so that they know everything Jesus wants them to know about how to live a godly life. So make disciples as you go, then baptize them as they identify with Christ and keep teaching them so that they're growing, they're being sanctified. We should not be surprised that that's what we find Paul and his team doing in our text. Look at verses 11 and 12. It's their story of going. Doesn't have to be all of our stories. We're just borrowing the idea from the text. But the going is there in the language of geography. There's a voyage and setting sail. There's these cities and regions. And we finally end up at Philippi, familiar city for those of you who have had a New Testament in your hands for a long time. There's going to be a letter in this book to those Philippian Christians. So there they are at Philippi. Verse 13 says they sat down and spoke to these people. Verse 14 mentions what was said by Paul. So clearly there's the engagement with our words as well as our lives with people who need to hear good news. In verse 15, we have a baptism. Baptizing those who have put their faith in Christ. And then in verse 17, though we're kind of changing stories, we're reminded of what they were doing. Because this girl, who is kind of oppressed by a spirit, is going around shouting what is actually true. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And verse 18 says, she kept doing this for many days. Well, if she was doing it for many days, it's because for many days, Paul is actually proclaiming that message. He is being obedient to the commission. Wherever he's going, he's telling people about Jesus. When they believe in him, he's baptizing them and teaching them what they need to know about the Christian life. Paul is sharing the gospel, baptizing converts, teaching them to follow Jesus. Now, for clarity, let me explain something in verse 14. Because we read there, there's this woman named Lydia. She has this business. She's the seller of these dyed garments. But it says there, she was a worshiper of God. Now, in our English Bible, that just comes to us as a description of what you and I would be who believe in Jesus and we've gathered to worship. But this worshiper of God language is used as an expression for a Gentile who is kind of recognizing the the monotheistic approach of the Jews, meaning the one God approach versus the multiple gods in the Greek and Roman culture. So they're not totally pagan, but they're not totally Jewish. They don't buy into the customs and a lot of the regulations of the Jewish life. They just kind of know I'm less multi-God and I'm more of kind of a one-God person. We saw this already in chapter 10 when Peter is called to minister to the Gentiles represented by Cornelius. And it says in chapter 10 and verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God But as the paragraph unfolds, we find out he knows nothing of Jesus and salvation through Christ, and so he comes to faith and is baptized. So this worshiper of God or a devout man who worshiped God, it simply means they were kind of in the Jewish camp, though they were Gentiles, but they had never been introduced to this good news that Jesus saves sinners. Both Cornelius and and Lydia needed to hear the clear gospel that God is merciful to save sinners through faith in Christ. Well, they did hear that. But our text unfolds the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners in those simple words that aren't theologically confusing, it's not some big word we have to look up in the dictionary. It's simply the narrative. The Lord opened their hearts. Next time somebody wants to debate big theological issues, just take them to this text and say, it's, it's not as hard as our minds make it. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I just realize when you really dive into the depths of the sovereignty of God, we should not be surprised that swimming in the deep end, we're going to get tired of treading water. And sometimes we just can't make sense of it all. So it's helpful at times to just come to a simple story in the Bible of somebody coming to faith in Jesus, knowing they needed to be saved because they're a sinner. And it just says the Lord opened their hearts. and, and, And they welcomed that news and believed in Jesus. God Opens hearts to salvation. You know, the Bible is full of this message that just reminds us, whatever your story, whatever age you were when you came to faith, whoever told you, however many times you were told, really our stories are all the same. We were dead in sin, we were blinded by our sin, and God opened our hearts. He made us alive so that we could know what it is to treasure a savior Jeremiah asked this question the prophet in the Old Testament can the Ethiopian change his skin can he make it a different color and then he asked a second question can the leopard change his spots you've seen the the leopard at the zoo and all those colored patterns can Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? And then he draws a conclusion with an assumed, if so, if an Ethiopian can change his skin color, and if a leopard could change his spots, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah's point is, unless the Lord opens hearts, No one who is evil, a sinner, can do any good to merit eternal life or to please God. We can't do it. We all understand not changing our skin color or a leopard not changing his furry spots. So let us understand that apart from the grace of God, we can't do any good. And it just reminds us of what Ephesians says tells us in chapter 2. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that we can't boast of anything. Whatever story we tell about coming to faith in Christ, it starts with God is full of grace and he was merciful to me to open my heart to the good news. And it might be a simple text like this is instructive, in more ways than are on our outline. It might mean as you think of being a witness, you borrow from this a little bit. People want to know what church you go to and what's your religion and what you believe. And you might want to start saying something real simple. Like, God just opened my heart to see the truth. That my life was a mess and I needed the rescue that only Jesus gives. But put God in that seat of mercy and love so that he's known as a God who reaches down and saves sinners. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Don't don't accept yourself from the group by having a story different than John chapter 6. Your story may be that you came to Jesus and believed But give all the glory to God by recognizing no one comes unless the Father draws him. In that lengthy chapter, Jesus went on to teach of the glory of God and salvation. He went on to say, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. This is why I told you that no man can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. God must open hearts to salvation. Luke has made it clear in this story of Acts. Back in chapter 11, he said that God grants repentance that leads to life. Does the Bible tell us to repent? It does. But even our repentance is a gift of God. Does God tell us to believe? It does. He does. But even our faith is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, lest we would boast in that. Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote to the believers there, saying, We ought always to give thanks to God. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. He wrote to Timothy in his second letter, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. It's it's the sweet story of Sabbath rest. We don't have to work to please God. We just rest. And every seventh day was designed as a reminder that you stop working. And on that day of rest, you still find the provision of God faithful. Because He provides what we cannot provide for ourselves a record of perfect righteousness. Though we may try to be a good person, it is never perfect righteousness that is fit to stand before God. And yet God in his grace saves us, not because we were good enough, but because Jesus was good enough in our place. So the text is simple though it's loaded with theological implications that we find elsewhere in Scripture. It's simple, and it simply says, the Lord opened her heart. And she turns from sin and trusts in Jesus as God's provision for that record of righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. Then she's baptized, the text tells us, and her house with her. And let me just make a side note here. Uh, We believe baptism is for believers, those who have put their faith in Christ and want to live for him. We call that credo baptism. You hear that word creed. We believe something, and so when somebody believes something and professes that, we baptize them based on what they believe. An alternative to that understanding of the Bible's teaching of baptism would be a position of paedo-baptism. Paedo, you might hear it more in the word pediatrician. It's the word for child, or what we would talk about as infant baptism. Um, Now, the text doesn't say much about it, but it is interesting that we have two baptisms in our reading this morning. This one says, Lydia believed, and she was baptized, and her household as well. We'll see similar language regarding the Philippian jailer. I just want you to know that there's a study that you could do, and if you want the verses, let me know afterwards. I'll send them to you. There there are these 11 passages in the New Testament dealing with someone being baptized. And yet every one of those passages has a reference to the word being taught or believed before someone was baptized. So the argument for baptizing infants is drawn not from looking at Bible passages, but from analyzing how God has worked through human history. They argue that since children were circumcised in the Old Covenant under Abraham and under the law of Moses, that that was a sign that they belonged to the people of God. Pado-Baptists, if they're at least looking at the Bible, would say the new sign is baptism. So we baptize our infants as a sign and really as a hope that they will be part of God's family eventually. It's not illogical, but I do think it misses the point of the book of Hebrews in, in significant changes from old to new covenant. That's on the logical analysis on the biblical analysis, I come back to every text mentions faith. Now, the account of Lydia is unique because it only mentions her faith. She was baptized, and then we have extra details and her household. In that lack of clarity, the Paedobaptists baptists say, see, surely there must have been infants in it entire household, and they were all baptized. But again, that's speculation. I say, well, let's go to the next story of baptism with the Philippian jailer and see if there's any clarity that is found there, and I think it is, because the text says Paul preached not only to the jailer, but to his household. And he baptized the jailer and his household. You saw it there in verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Now, let's let's just kind of look at this, frankly. Let's assume there were infants in the house. The text is clear. He was teaching the word to the people in the house. We don't generally think of applying that to infants. Further in verse 34, he says, when the jailer brought them into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So the entire household hears the word, entire household is baptized, the entire household rejoicing in salvation that God brings. If your infant can do all that, then you can baptize your infant, I would argue. But I think it's clear that household baptism is just a reflection of, of the gospel message spreading through that household and more of them believing. Again, that conflict isn't one that we draw hard lines between, like, we're not going to fellowship with those people who say they're Christians because they baptize infants. As long as they're not baptizing infants as a meritorious work of salvation, then we would recognize that, Their understanding of Scripture may be different than ours, but they're still believers that we would fellowship with. We're thinking mainly of the conservative Presbyterian church that exists in our nation. Maybe some Lutherans. Um, There are those who baptize infants that are not doing it for salvation, and we would count them as dear brothers and sisters that we simply disagree with. And our disagreement is, all right, Let's go to Scripture and look at every example of water baptism and what do we find as the common denominator? It's faith, credo baptism. All right, so if that's a question or a debate that you have to face and want to wrestle with that more, by all means, talk to me and I'll I'll let you wrestle with those passages and help you kind of make a biblical case there. Lydia's baptized. She's living for the Lord, showing hospitality, And then our story moves on to another account. God opens hearts to salvation. First in the story of Lydia, through that obedience to the Great Commission. But now I want us to look at the second story and understand God opens hearts to salvation as illustrated by this freedom from spiritual darkness. Paul is preaching the gospel. And this girl is following her around. She has this spirit of divination, it says. It's an interesting study into the history of the day. The word that's there in our text is our English word python, the big snake. But the big snake back then was tied to the god Apollos because of various stories. So there's a lot of history that we're not really getting from the text. But just know there's all kinds of spirit power that was at work in this girl. The very dark side of what we don't see in everyday living. Ephesians 6 tells us about it. Spiritual wickedness in high places that really does define who our enemy is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Evil people are not the enemy. It's the God of this world who has blinded them who is the enemy. And that enemy was at work in very pagan cultures in in ways that are much more manifest than we have experienced in the history of America because, I believe, of its foundations in Bible. We have been what has been rightly called a Christian nation for a long time. That was the dominant kind of ethic or morality of the land. We weren't a pagan nation but talk to those who live in dark places and you hear stories of darkness that makes us think, that's kind of spooky or weird. But it's just the reality. And Paul comes face to face with physical manifestations of spiritual darkness. And what's interesting is she's following around these gospel messengers, but she's parroting a gospel message. These are servants of the Most High God. Now, that language is easily interchangeable in their pagan culture, so that's not like a clear definition of triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the next phrase is pretty unique. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days until Paul, having become greatly annoyed well, there's hope for a lot of us, right? (laughs) This guy suddenly became very feet of clay kind of thing. (laughs) Why wasn't he annoyed before, though, (laughs) right? Was it just a matter of time? Like, Was it the tone of her voice? (laughs) High-pitched shrill? I don't know. But I think what we can conclude, just based on his message and the the source of her being, what she was doing, Paul Paul had had enough of a a pagan source parroting his message and thus muddying the waters. Remember, he's ministering to a polytheistic culture, glad to hear about another god, sure, who is it? What do I have to do to appease him? And Paul was like, you know what? I, I don't need your help anymore. I don't want your pagan voice added to my voice and distorting the message. And so by the power of God, the name of Jesus Christ, he demands that this spirit leave her, and it does in that moment. And immediately people notice the difference. She is released from this bondage she was in because of this influence and oppression she's being trafficked for that that dark powers ability to speak into events that were going on all of that somehow changed in that moment so that even those handling her knew they had just lost that enormous dark power and that's what causes the scene their bottom line is immediately sunk and they They want retribution. So they kind of talk all fancy about what went wrong and God's messengers show up in jail. Now, I want us to just think for a moment about this girl. We are not told in that short account that this girl believed in Jesus. But we are told that she was delivered from spiritual oppression in the name of Jesus. So I can't argue conclusively she's a follower of Jesus Christ. Where does that leave me then trying to fit this into a sermon, right? Well, I don't really have anything to tell you about her except that the Lord opens hearts and it's clearly illustrated in this story if it's not just a reality that we're not told about. The reality is, in the name of Jesus Christ, spiritual wickedness is defeated. That's the point of the story. Did she become a follower of Jesus? I would say likely so, but I can't prove that to you. But what I can prove is that here is another account that verifies what Jesus promised. The gates of hell cannot withstand the advance of the gospel. And so read that story and rejoice, not because we know her exact condition, but because we know there is power in the name of Jesus to overcome any evil, any darkness. There's hope that God opens heart to salvation. There's hope, 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 4, that the light that shines from the face of Christ can pierce the darkest heart you know. And that's hopeful. That brings us back to a simple faith that the Lord opens hearts to salvation. Number three, God opens hearts to salvation by circumstances that we may not like or understand. Verse 23, they inflicted many blows on them, threw them into prison. The jailer, having received this order, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, last week we talked about surrender being the key to knowing God's will. If we're surrendered, we take our hands off our plans. It's a little easier to know what God wants because you're free. You're not saying, well, I kind of wanted to do this. No, if you're just saying, I just want to do what God wants, You step out and God can easily steer you where he wants you to be. Last time we saw Paul receive that vision to come to Philippi, Macedonia. We called that an open door. God said, hey, go there. And that sounds great. Oh, an open door. Let's go in. But here's why it's important to be surrendered to whatever God wants, even as we try to discern an open door. Because Paul arrives in Macedonia and teaches and it lands him in prison with a beating in stocks. And that might feel a bit like a closed door. And so you could imagine a novice missionary fired up about spreading the gospel and it looks like an open door and following that kind of simple approach and here's an open door and then it looks like it's slammed shut. You can imagine that believer being in a bit of turmoil, discouragement, but I thought it was an open door and I don't know why God wouldn't allow it to happen if it's, if it would, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just surrender. The, The opening and closings, we were not told how to do that real well. We are told to be filled with the spirit and yielded to the spirit and keeping in step with the spirit, surrendered. Because then it's not really a matter of whether doors are open or not. It's how will God use me where I am? They're in prison. And instead of asking those questions, well, I thought this was God's will. I th- wasn't that vision pretty clear? Instead, it's like, God, do what you want to do. We're praising you for bringing us here. Never saw the inside of a prison like this. And they're singing and praying. And the text says the prisoners were listening to them. The Bible is filled with the word listen. It's a simple verb, and yet this one is only used here in this text. And it seems to hearken with a couple of weird ideas. One is the listening. The other was with beauty. So unlike just hearing sounds... It's like the, the, the other prisoners and everyone in the jail is intrigued. It's like there's something different about that. It defies everything about our circumstance. God is opening hearts to salvation by circumstances we may not like nor understand. But when we're surrendered to God's will, we can trust that what seems like closed to us, may actually prove to be open in God's plan. This Philippian jailer story that we've known for a long time, if you've been in church, because of that famous question, what must I do to be saved? This story is God's plan. And the closed door at Philippi and getting thrown in jail is God's plan. Because God's plan is not to make the gospel easy to share everywhere. God's plan is to save sinners who come to faith in Christ. And if getting to that jailer meant, I need to get one of my preachers right in his ear, then off to prison with you. It's not a closed door. It's wide open. The jailer is saved and his whole household. That is not a closed door. It was just a hard path walking through a very open door. But that's where surrender will take you. Not questioning what is God doing, but trusting him that he's doing exactly what he wants to do. Your neighborhood may be hard, and those believers may be even antagonistic towards your gospel. The workplace may be a challenge. You might be signing up every day to drive to work and put your feet in stocks what it might feel like because of the, the, just the antagonism towards the gospel in our culture anymore. We'll come back to this text and realize that might be a very open door. God wants the fragrance, the beauty of you and your relationship with Jesus to be there. Because as Paul would write else, elsewhere, for those of us who are believing, we are this fragrance and to some, it will be the fragrance of life. They're going to, like the jailer, they're going to say, I, I want what you have. To others, it will be the fragrance of death. Though everything you say and everything you long for, for them, is God's best, they say, "No, what, that stinks. I don't want anything to do with it. But Paul knew his job wasn't to be more fragrant or to make it work he simply surrendered to wherever God had him and he let that fragrance of the gospel be known. By circumstances we may not like or understand, God is working his plan to open hearts. Paul would write later in another one of his letters that his imprisonments actually furthered the gospel to places he could have never reached into Caesar's household, into high-ranking government officials. And his imprisonment that actually ended in his beheading was a furtherance of the gospel. We look at it, we think that's a pretty severe end of Paul's ministry. Paul said, no, don't look at it that way. Look at the seeds that were sown and the fruit that will continue on because of Closed doors that we perceived being actually open doors that God designed. Paul would say in Philippians 1, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, by freedom or imprisonment, poverty or wealth. I just want Christ to be known. What door can close that desire? Number four, God opens hearts to salvation in the simple message of faith in Jesus. We labor week by week to make you a better and better theologian. Someone who knows the character of God and his plan as it unfolds in the Bible. But the reality is, if you're not, you know, like an A plus student or, you know, seminary degree kind of understanding yet, that you would at least understand the simplicity of a story that unfolds with someone saying, What must I do to be saved? And there's a simple answer. Oh, it's full, but it's simple. This simple message of faith in Jesus. It's a simple message because it's a simple question. What must I do to be saved? Well, we could also think, how did he even know to ask that question? But remember our context. Verse 17, we heard for many days, Paul had been proclaiming, and it had been parroted by this girl, These are the servants of God proclaiming the way of salvation. They're talking about some kind of rescue from our ruined condition. In verse 18, that's where the girl is shouting it along with Paul. Verse 25, they're singing and praying to God. So something that the jailer had heard by now, either the account of the prisoners he was watching or in their very witness through their song and prayer he recognized that this salvation that was being talked about was something he desperately needed. What must I do to be saved? And it's a dramatic story. Some of you have lived through a few more earthquakes than others. We had that little rumble in Kansas City a few years back. Do you remember that? We thought like the dryer was like on or something on a, what was a Saturday morning? And it wasn't on, it was just kind of shaking uh, and rubbing up against the washing machine. And you kind of realize, this is unsettling. Well, this is even more unsettling. It's a great earthquake. Foundations of the prison are shaken, but nothing falls in on anybody. And yet, every door is open and every chain falls off. Kind of unnatural targeting of Uh, of what happened in this earthquake. Some of that must have come into play in overwhelming this jailer. So God's shaking the whole earth to open the hearts of this one man. In that dramatic moment, he's about to fall on his sword and commit suicide because if his prisoners escape, he's on the hook for it. They interrupt that process he brings them out and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they give him the answer. Believe in Jesus. You say, wait wait a minute. If if there's anything else required for salvation, now's the time to say it. Tell, Tell us whatever else there should be, Paul. You're this great preacher of the gospel. You're the missionary evangelist to the Gentiles. You're the writer of, Much of the New Testament, if there's anything else we need to know, now's the time. Because it has just been served up to you. You have just been given the mic. Speak clearly and get it right. Paul, is there anything else that I have to do? Do I have to be good enough? Do I have to be in the right kind of church? Do I have to attend Grace Bible Church? Do I have to be a member there? Do I have to give enough in the offering? Like, tell me. I'm ready. I'll do anything, but tell me what I have to do. Do I have to be baptized? Do I I have to be a missionary? Tell me. I want to know. And Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, has a precise answer. And it doesn't involve love your neighbor as yourself, It doesn't involve charitable works. It doesn't involve church attendance or baptism. Though all of those things will obviously shape the entire life of the Christian. But to become a Christian, what is the Bible answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And again, you don't need to be a seminary student to know you can you could read this here today in the hearing of the crowd as we heard it you can go home and read it and the answer is clear believe in the lord jesus and there's a conclusion and that saves believe in jesus to save you in english it's a it's almost a play on words it's just confusing what do i have to do 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 to be saved and the answer is Believe, or rather, believe what Jesus has done. Because the doing is what we feel we need. I have to do something to please God. But you can't do enough to please God. So the answer is, what do you have to do? Nothing. Instead, stop doing and believe that Jesus has done what is needed. He has kept the law perfectly. He has died on the cross for sin and he has risen from the grave conquering death. So if you want to be righteous in the presence of God and not give account for your sin and be judged for it and live with him forever in resurrection life, then believe in Jesus who has done all of that for you. What do I have to do to be saved? Well, in a polytheistic culture, With that Roman pantheon of gods, you had to appease them all. You had to satisfy them all. You had to do right all the time, make the right offerings and leave the right food here and there. You had to appease all these gods. Tell me what I have to do to appease this God, the God you guys are preaching about. And Paul's answer is one of rest and peace. You don't do anything. Our message is God has done what is needed in his son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked this question and found the biblical answer? What do I have to do to be saved? In other words, what do I have to do to be right with God? I probably don't have to convince you that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's commandments. So how can you, a lawbreaker, be made right with the perfect righteous judge? And here's our answer. Believe that Jesus can save you. He can make you righteous. He will forgive your sin. And he will give you a home in heaven. This is the gospel. And yet it's unfolding in the going. Somebody just was off to the next place. And communicating the good news, and then we see the harvest. Believing, baptizing, growing in the faith. Some contend that Paul should have mentioned repentance. I would argue such an objection betrays a shallow definition of faith. What it means to trust or believe in Jesus. It is completely true that sinners must repent to be saved. In just the next chapter, we're going to read, God commands sinners everywhere to repent. They have to. But that is built into trusting Jesus. It's saying, I can't trust in my own works anymore. I'm sinful. They're contaminated. I turn from sin to Jesus in faith so that faith in Jesus is a turning from sin. It's one in the same turn away from the sin and to Jesus. And so Paul doesn't have to elaborate that here. He's getting down to the, the simplest expression of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Is there more we can say and explain? Certainly. But you now are equipped. You have a story to tell. The Lord opened my heart to the truth. And you have the gospel in a nutshell. you got to trust Jesus and not your own effort at pleasing God. You're ready. You can do this task of witnessing. Well, before we conclude with those few brief statements, just note there's a, there's a good little study here. At the end, okay, uh, this is really scary earthquakes and we don't know what's going on. Why don't you all just move on? Just, just leave. You have permission to leave now. And Paul's like, nope, <laughs> staying right here. You guys threw me in prison unjustly. You guys can walk down here and escort me right out of here. I'll, I'll leave, but you're going to walk me out of town smiling the whole way. And we think, okay, is this, is this like poking him in the eye a little bit, or what's he doing? But I think when you really wrestle with this, you realize there's, there's principles here at play that are highlighting the text, the injustice of it. Uh, there's a protection of the church that Paul's leaving behind. He's making sure everyone understands, okay, there's a justice that applies even to God's people. And I think he's protecting the testimony of the gospel, he was thrown in prison with all these charges that they're contaminating the culture and doing all these bad things. And Paul's like, hey, just for the record, you make it clear, that's, that wasn't our message or our intent. Our message is Jesus saves sinners. You may not like that, but our message was not insurrection and insubordination and all that stuff we're being charged with. So get it right on the record. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes stellar citizens. And then he was willing to leave once his points were clear. I don't know that we needed that in the text, you know, for maybe this week. But I think in a culture that is more and more antagonistic to our gospel, it's good to remember we can stand up and be courageous, not just in the sake of I'm a Christian, but invoicing my Christianity in the nation in which we live. So what do we do with this? God opens hearts for salvation. What does that mean for us this week? Number one, be clear with the good news. You're a witness. Be clear. Just as Paul came into town and started talking, in his case, with this group of women meeting down by the river, he'd talk to anyone. Just be clear with the good news. Leave here with a spring in your step. Wake up tomorrow remembering I have good news. Number two, be sure that God can save. We're not always sure of it because we know stubborn unbelievers. We know God hating unbelievers. We know people who are living in every kind of concocted lifestyle we could define. It's unbiblical, it's anti-God. We know these people, we work with them we, we shop with them. We, we live in communities with them. Do you really believe God can save the worst sinner you know? Or do you think some hearts are just too locked up and God doesn't have that set of keys? And he's frustrated because it won't work in the lock. We don't want that for our theology. That's not the God we want to sing about. The Lord is our salvation. No, he's the God that doesn't need a key. He just breaks down the door. That's what our text says. He'll just shake the whole earth until that door opens up. So do we believe God can save that person that you've been praying for for years? Rest in the simplicity of the text, the Lord opens hearts. Number three, be aware that today's circumstances may be ordained to open someone's heart to the gospel. You didn't want to be stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire waiting for AAA to show up. But who is that guy hooking up your car? Why did he show up on this day? And why did you have that flat tire or stalled engine? The circumstances we may not like or understand may be the very situation that we piously prayed for at the conclusion of the sermon on being a witness. Lord, give us opportunities to witness Doggone it! Why does this car have to break down? Run, 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 run! The guy comes, takes the car. You're talking to all kinds of people in the bad situation, and not one of them heard the good news because it was a circumstance we didn't like or understand, and we just switched gears. We're not advancing the kingdom. We want prosperity gospel. We want cars that run, and air conditioners and houses that keep cooling. But when they don't, maybe that's an open door. Maybe that's the opportunity. Because now a guy's going to be down in your cluttered basement working on your air conditioner for a couple hours. And you might just be able to share good news with him. So be aware of the circumstances in this coming week as perhaps being a table set for this Good feast of the gospel. Number four, be ready with the answer. It's faith in Jesus. You may may not get all the words right. You may stumble over explanations, but come back to the simplicity. You have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Because if you can get that out, they'll probably feed you some easy questions. Saved from what? Answer it in a simple sentence. Well, I'm a good person. All right, answer that in a simple sentence. You can do this. You can be ready with the answer as scripture calls us to. So, some great stories. We love hearing about Lydia's conversion, freedom from demonic oppression. What must I do to be saved? Believe, and he does, and his whole household. Great stories. But they have to mean something for us this week. So, be ready. Be aware, be sure, be clear. This is what God wants of us today. Heavenly Father, show us the wonder of salvation that begins in your love and mercy, that begins with you opening hearts. Go with us this week. Strengthen us. This is the promise we claim. You are with us always to the ends of the earth, even if the end for us is right here in the metro of Kansas City. Go with us. Empower us, embolden us with this good news that we have to share. Do this, please, for the glory of your name. Amen.